The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, as they head out the door, you can turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We've been going through the book of Titus on Sunday evenings. And about a month ago, I had the opportunity to speak on Sunday morning, and we were in Titus chapter 2 at that time. And in that lesson, we saw that Paul was teaching Titus that it was his duty to teach others within his church that they have a duty to disciple one another. That it's not good enough for us to just show up and then leave. It's not even good enough for us to have casual acquaintances at church, but that we come to church to be discipled, to walk with Christ, to become more and more like Him, to follow Christ, to be obedient to Christ. So we come to be a disciple, but we also come to be a discipler, to help others in their walk with Christ. And so Titus chapter 2 really speaks about what the church is supposed to be doing within these walls and within, within ourselves, within this group of people. We are to be discipling one another and helping each other walk closer and closer to Christ every day. And so I bring that up this morning because I know that there were a few people that came to me afterward and said, you know what, that's something I really need to focus on in my life. That's something I personally have been really focusing on. And I want to encourage you that, that it's not just enough for us to know what we're supposed to be doing. When it comes to making disciples and your call as a believer to do that, you've got to do it. You've got to step out and invite that person over or or. Whatever it is, you got to purposefully have those conversations and spend the time with the people and invite them into your life and into fellowship with you. If you don't ever start doing it, it just, it just can't become a pattern in your life. We are called to make disciples. And so be that. Be a disciple maker. As we direct our attention to chapter 3 this morning, we find that Paul is now telling Titus how believers ought to behave outside of the church family so as to represent their Savior well. If you're a Christian, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, this is now a part of your life. Whether you like it or not, as a Christian, you are an ambassador of Christ. Now, it only feels right for me to warn you this morning that this passage, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, is every preacher's dream. It is... So good and so clear. And so I am going to do my best not to mess it up and to have you out of here before four or five. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm asking you to do your best to listen on purpose and to hear what God has to say through the book of Titus to us this morning. If you read the New Testament and specifically Paul's letters, you will find a pattern you will find that Paul always follows imperatives with indicatives. An imperative is a command. It's a behavior that we must imitate, a rule that we must obey, something we must do or something we must stop doing. That is the part of the Bible that says, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do this. This is your behavior as a Christian. Those are the imperatives. But what Paul always does is he takes the imperative and he follows that with an indicative an indicative is something that is true it's a statement of fact it is not something that requires an action 
It is just a truth that exists. The tragedy of the Christian life is when we get these two things confused. When we start assuming that the imperatives are just going to happen to us magically, without us making any kind of effort or any kind of attempt, that all of a sudden we're just going to be these incredible followers of Christ. That's a mistake. No, it takes effort. We need to fight the good fight. We need to put every effort out to obedience. But it's equally bad, or maybe even worse, if we start taking the indicatives and making them imperatives. That we start trying to work for something that God has already accomplished. Something that God has already done. And what Paul is doing here is he's making very clear what God has done and what the truth of the gospel is. And then also the implications that the truth of the gospel has for our lives. In other words, how our lives must be, must be changed in light of this truth. Titus chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 is a masterful example of this pattern of imperative followed by indicative. First a command, then the truth that will motivate, enable, empower, and equip us to obey the truth. And so look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Paul writes, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing meekness unto all men. Paul says, remind those believers that they have joined themselves to Christ, they have joined themselves to the church of Crete that is representative of Christ, and that now they must be subject, be obedient, to be ready to do all good works, to control their tongue, to be humble, to be meek, to be patient toward all men. Paul begins by telling them what they must do. And if we were to go through this list again, and we did this last Sunday night, if we were to go through this list, we'd find that, that these things are incredibly difficult. Like trying to follow those commands are next to impossible for any human being. In fact, I would say they are impossible for every human being, but this is what God is calling the believer to. Verse number three, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul reminds them that they, they once were foolish, but now they must have different minds. They once were disobedient, they were deceived, and now they must voluntarily submit themselves to the laws of the land and the people who have offices, hold offices of authority. Paul is showing this contrast, right? First we have all the things that we must do, and then, then right after that we have, we once were these things. We once served a variety of different lusts and pleasures, Right? At one point, it was all about us, all about me, all about what my flesh wanted. Now we are to be ready to every good work toward others. We were malicious and envious, hateful and hating one another, but now we're to speak evil of no man, to be gentle, to, to not be a brawler, to be patient, to be humble. Such a unique difference. I believe Paul gives this list for three reasons. I think he's reminding us what we were for three reasons. And first of all, I think it's because it clearly lays out for us the changes that should be occurring in the believer's life. 
So when you take one statement and you say, well, you should be this, that's helpful, isn't it? It's helpful to know what we're, what we're supposed to be doing. But when that, that belief or that, that statement of what we're supposed to be doing is contrasted with who we used to be, it becomes even more clear of the change that should be taking place. I started here, I'm trying to get here. So this isn't just like kind of some crazy destination off in the future. This is something that, that all believers should be working toward, the change that should be taking place. The second reason is that it reminds us to have compassion on those who do not know Christ and are enslaved to sin. I think it's very easy for us to adopt an attitude of contempt rather than an attitude of compassion on sinners. Isn't that true? It's true to, to, to hold contempt for our culture, for our society. It's very easy to see what others are doing and, and have those things, have us not just get angry at the sin and angry that God's not being glorified as He deserves, but to, to just be angry at those people and hateful of those people. The Bible's calling us, certainly we hate sin, but we're not supposed to be hateful of one another, hateful of, of others. We are reminded here to have compassion and not, be, not have contempt. Why? Because all of the things that you hate in that person used to be you. Because there is not a sin under heaven that you're not capable of. That all of us have a sin nature. It was all given from the same place. We all are um, children of Adam. And so if that was God's attitude toward us, then Adam is the only person who ever continues to breathe. If God ever had this contemptible attitude towards sinners, we're in a lot of trouble. If that's God's attitude, Noah never builds a boat, and Christ never comes to die for sinners. Because we see throughout the Bible that God loves sinful people. He hates their sin. It is an affront to who he is. He hates the rebellion because he knows it's destroying them. He knows it's bad, but he loves them. Number three, I think that Paul giving these lists side by side prepares us to be amazed once again by the verses that are to follow. Don't get used to the gospel. Don't let it be something that you hear and then, oh yeah, that's, that's that. I heard that last week. I'm, you know, what's new? What's exciting? It's not. There's nothing more amazing. There's nothing more exciting. Right? The song, I love to tell the story. Why do you love to tell the story? Because it's the only story that matters. It's the story that impacts who I am now and who I will be forever, where I'll be forever. There's no story greater. So we should be amazed once again by the verses to follow. And part of that is not thinking too highly of ourselves. Part of that is recognizing what we justly deserved and what we've been saved from. Verse number four. But after that, so after Paul has just summarized some of the sins of humanity and said we were once like that, after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. After you were wretched, awful, sinful, lustful, deceived, malicious, hateful, proud, enemies of one another and enemies of God, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. What a God we serve compared to who we are. 
when people are acting that way around me, it just makes me angry. I want nothing to do with them, let alone to send my son to die in their place to pay their punishment. But that's the God we serve. That's what he did. His kindness was showered on our greed, our jealousy, our malice. He poured out on us while we were hateful, while we were hating one another, and while we were hating him. And so now Paul explains what this looks like. What what does it look like for God's kindness and love to be poured on sinful people? Verse number five, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have been saved. Not by our righteous acts, not by our winning personalities, not by keeping four of the Ten Commandments that we can remember. It's not because there's anything good in us. There's nothing that we have done to contribute to our salvation. But he says here, it's not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, that he saved us. We have been saved. Those who are in Christ no longer face that eternal punishment. We no longer face the, the consequences of our sin. It's an incredible thing. Mercy is not giving a person what they deserve. And so when he says he showed mercy on us, what he's saying is we didn't get what we deserved. It's like a judge saying, well, the, the, the crime for the punishment that you have committed is 10 years in prison. But instead, I'm going to give you an ice cream cone. That's it's mercy. I mean, it's not getting what you justly deserve. And some of us, we, we struggle to make the gospel so important in our lives because we, we start to believe that we deserve a little bit of it. We, we think that, yeah, we're pretty good people now. We give money to the church. Um, we support groups that go out. Maybe even we go to Guatemala. Maybe we go on a missions trip. Who knows? I mean, we talk to our neighbors. We try and be kind to people. We even try and be kind to some people that aren't nice to us. And that merits you eternal life? That erases your rebellion against God and your sin? No, absolutely not. But God did by sending his son. We have been saved according to his mercy. The penalty for sin is death. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. It is abundantly clear in Scripture that there is a penalty be, to be paid for our sin. And, and the, the reason that you don't think your sin is so bad is because you are so immersed in it. We are so immersed in a culture and a people who are accepting of sin, expecting sin. Yes, we can find some people's sin that we find gross and disgusting. Right? We can look on the news and say, I can't believe that person did that. can't believe anybody is so twisted, so perverted. How could they act in such a way? But you never say that about your own sin. And that's the problem. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. So it's not just that sin that is ugly and disgusting in His sight. It is all sin. 
our sin included. If we could get a right perspective on our sin, we would be much better off because we would recognize how amazing the grace of God is, how amazing His mercy is. It wasn't just 10 years in prison we deserved. It was an eternity of punishment. And yet God, in His mercy, saved us. The washing of regeneration speaks of the new birth. Christ famously said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's interesting to me that there are some people that that say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-againers. Okay. But according to Jesus, there aren't any other kinds. You must be born again. You must be born of physically and, and spiritually. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that there was no life in us, and we must have life. We must be born again. Otherwise, we have no ability to commune with God. The washing of regeneration speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that the Holy Spirit seals us to the day of redemption. All of this was given to us in abundance by Jesus Christ, our Savior. His sinless life and his atoning death is the greatest gift that mankind has ever received, can ever receive. And so at the moment that you are justified, at the moment you are declared and made righteous by God, you become an heir of eternal life. It's not just an ice cream cone, right? It's not just that you don't suffer the punishment that you deserve, but it's you are an heir of God, an heir of all things. That, that eternity, everything from in heaven, it's, it's yours. You are an heir of Christ. And so you spend eternity with him someday. Um, I picture a man on death row with only days to live and not a penny to his name. And he enters into a room with God. And God says, I will show you mercy. You will not have to die. The punishment that you deserve, I will take. I'll die in your place. Here, let me give you my freedom, my righteousness. I take your place as condemned criminal, and you take my place as someone who is free and righteous, someone who is just. I will show grace. Not only will you never die, but you will live with me forever in paradise. Everything that is mine is now yours as well. What an incredible scene that would be. There is no way that a man like that wouldn't live the rest of his life with gratitude, ingratitude, for the one who saved him like that. He had nothing. He was hopeless and helpless and lost. And God gave him everything. So much more than he deserved. I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I think that that would be the best day of that man's life. I think that would be a day he would think about for the rest of his life. It impacts everything about him. Everything about I mean, the fact that he's... He's going to be alive forever. That is the gospel. God takes what we deserve on himself, and he gives us what we could never earn. He gives us his righteousness. And so now Paul brings the conversation back to the imperative. He gives the imperative at first. He told us what we're not supposed to do, who we were, and what we are supposed to do now, how we're supposed to live. And then he goes on and he explained to us what the gospel is. Now, if, if, 
the goal of the Bible was simply to reform your behavior, that second part is not really necessary, right? If you were able to just, okay, this is what God wants from your life, and so the, the, the Bible is like a guidebook to living, then all you do is follow the instructions and everything turns out well in the end. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is the story of redemption. And the redemption that's provided in Christ has an impact on our lives. And so he gives these verses because without these verses, we have no ability, no power to actually obey the commands that he's already given us. In verse number eight, he says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. He said, Titus, I want you to constantly, thoroughly be careful to tell these people in great detail what God has done for them. And I want you to carefully, purposefully, in great detail, tell them how they ought to live in light of that truth. I want you to tell believers that they must be careful. And the idea there is to be purpose, purposeful or it's even the idea of being anxious. Has anybody ever been anxious about something before? Right? When you're anxious about that thing, it's like something that you really you can't get over. It's just always in your mind and it's always there. And maybe you forget about it for a moment, but then it's just right. Like, what, you know, why is my stomach bothering me right now? Why do I feel like I have it? Oh, that's it. Because that thing is always there. And that's the idea here that Christians ought to be careful to maintain good works. It should be always there, always on our mind. Something that we're not easily just coming to church and then forgetting and and going about our lives and then coming back and maybe being reminded of something the next week. And It's something that, that we're supposed to be conscious of constantly because that's what it's going to take if we're ever actually going to make any steps of obedience. We are to maintain good works. Christians are called to do good. It's not always going to be fair. It's not always going to work out. right? You're called to do good, to do right. And so I want to give you three applications this morning. Number one, gospel truth saves sinful people. Gospel truth, that is that Jesus Christ died in the place of sinful men, that he rose again, had victory over the grave, and that those who repent of their sin and trust in him for salvation will be saved eternally, that their sins are, are washed away in the blood of Christ, that they are made righteous, that gospel truth saves sinful people. This is a, a statement of fact. No person that has ever been saved was not first lost. Right? Every person that's ever been saved was lost first. And Every person that has ever lived is a sinner, except Jesus Christ. So no person has ever lived without being a sinner apart from Jesus Christ. The gospel saves sinful people. And so first Paul provides this illustration for us. When we look at the church, we clearly see this to be the the case, right? Paul says, you are to behave this way, but you once were this way. In other words, I mean, you look at that list and you see pretty sinful people, right? And so the illustration that gospel saves sinful people is sitting next to you right now, if that person's a believer. Every person that's ever been saved was once an awful sinner. When Paul says we ourselves were, he's referring directly to those who know Christ as 
their Savior. But then he says, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, meaning that God saved those sinful people in, this, in the state that they were in. That's why this, this morning we could sing the song that we sang. What good I've done could never save, my debt too great for deeds to pay. But God my Savior made a way. Hallelujah for the cross. A slave to sin, my life was bound. But all my chains fell to the ground when Jesus' blood came flowing down. Hallelujah for the cross. And there's no person that is ever saved that doesn't have that testimony that they were once a slave to sin, that their life was bound. The second thing we see here is that this is stated categorically, that gospel truth saves sinful people. It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Mercy is only good for those who are sinners. And so it's not by works, it's not by good things we do, but it's according to his mercy that we're saved. It's stated categorically. Uh, John Newton was once an abusive slave trader. He was the, the author of the song Amazing Grace, the greatest, greatest hymn or most sung hymn of all time. And toward the end of his life, he said this. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. There's an abusive slave trader who was transformed by the power of the gospel. He was a great sinner as am I, but we serve a great Savior. These two statements stand as the most important truths of all time. The gospel saves sinful people, and that means the gospel can save you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, there is no person outside of the reach of the gospel. God's grace is powerful enough to save every person in this room. And the evidence of that are the other people in this room. The evidence of that are people like John Newton. The evidence of that are these verses in the Bible that state that there's no way to save yourself anyway, that it's all by grace and mercy. Number two, gospel truth precedes gospel living. Gospel truth precedes gospel living. You cannot live out the gospel until you have the gospel. So don't get this switched around. Don't come to church and try and be moral. It's the, the most foolish thing you can do. You come to church, you come to Christ, you, it's all about the gospel. And gospel living flows out of a life that is being transformed by the gospel truth that they've accepted and believed. It begins on the inside and then it works its way out. If you start coming to church and, and trying to staple fruit on your life, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. You're going to be in a worse situation than you would be if you just recognize yourself to be a sinner, repent, and trust Christ. <clears throat> what is gospel living? I think sometimes we use phrases that mean something to us, but really nobody else knows what they mean. Whoa, what's gospel living? Okay. Gospel living, we see a taste of it right here, right? He says, put them in mind in verse 1, to be subject to principalities, to powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing meekness to all men. That's just a taste of what it means to, to live out the gospel. It means you're not the same person that you used to be. It means that you now obey the people that God tells you to obey. 
means you start to try and follow the morality given to us in Scripture. Now, my de- definition would be gospel living is upright moral living defined by God's Word and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's what it is. The Spirit takes the Word of God, and through the Holy Spirit, we are taught what is right, what we ought to do, and then we are empowered to go out and do those things. But it can only happen in the life of the believer. And so the gospel truth comes first. Many of you will also recognize the name William Wilberforce. Um, He was a contemporary of John Newton during the late 1700s and early 1800s in England. And they had a great deal of correspondence with one another. There was one time in in William Wilberforce's life that he had considered quitting politics to join ministry, to, to become a pastor of some kind. And it was actually John Newton that convinced him that he should just stay where he is and serve God where he is. And so he did that. At age 26, Wilberforce was saved. He came to Christ. And for the next 20 years, he campaigned to abolish the slave trade in the UK. Finally, in 1807, the slave trade was abolished. So here's a man who's a Christian, and he's working very hard on moral goods. It wasn't for another um, 26 years that they didn't just abolish the slave trade that you wouldn't, weren't allowed to buy and sell, but they actually abolished slavery, that, that the whole idea of slavery was illegal in England. And a lot of that had to do with this one man and his fight for this happening in this country. And so we look at this man, and he's a man who is clearly engaged politically. He's clearly concerned about morality. He's an active citizen of his country. But I want you to see what he wrote toward the end of his life. Because toward the end of the life, he bemoaned the fact that what he saw, the trend he saw in the church, is that doctrine was being replaced by practice. So that, so that rather than focusing on doctrine and what is true and right, the church focused too much, in his opinion, on what we were supposed to do and, and, and loving everyone, and not enough on what was true. This is really strange from a man who spent his life trying to abolish the slave trade. But this is what he said. And this is one of the greatest quotes that I think I've ever read. He said, Toward the close of the last century, the divines of the established church began to run into an error. They professed to make it their chief object to inculcate the moral and the practical precepts of Christianity, but without sufficiently maintaining or often even without justly laying the ground foundation of a sinner's acceptance with God or pointing out how the practical precepts of Christianity grow out of their peculiar doctrines and are inseparably connected with them. Okay, He was a good writer, so it's a lot to take in all at once. And, and, and I'm only like a third of the way through the quote. But what he's saying there is that what's happened is that we've allowed ourselves to focus on what we're supposed to do and we've left the doctrines that provide the foundation for all those things that provide the power for all those things okay yes those are good things and they're important but but they can't be sustained and maintained without the truth and part of that is recognizing the foundation foundation of the sinner's acceptance with god it's the gospel he goes on by this fatal error the very genius and essential nature of Christianity was inseparably changed. 
In this way, the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines incessantly gains strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight. And as might naturally be expected, the moral system also, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with light and nutrients, began to wither and decay. At length, within our own days, these peculiar doctrines have almost altogether vanished from view. Even in the great number of our sermons, scarcely any traces of them might be found. What a sad thing when we lose the most important thing. The most important thing is the gospel. The most important thing is truth. And if we don't have those things, no amount of action can, can, can be sustained. No amount of action will ultimately do any good. Okay, it is the truth of the gospel that undergirds everything that the Christian is to do. <clears throat> Moral reform is foolish, it is vain, and it is temporary without a gospel foundation. The wise and the foolish men both built the same house. And one had a foundation and the other did not. And if we are not careful to, to build the foundation of our lives on the truths of the gospel, then when the storm comes, when difficulties come, when, when those things are tried, then we will fail. It will fall. And so we must have the truth. Number three, gospel truth requires gospel living. So it's not just that gospel truth precedes gospel living, okay? that the truth comes first and then we live it out, but it's actually that this truth requires something of us. It's not okay for us to say, well, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad that I heard that this morning. Let me go upon my normal life. Once you know the gospel truth and you've accepted it, it requires you to live it out. Um, I made this point separate. It might seem like the same point twice, um, but I made it separate because I'm trying to add emphasis. And I think Paul does this too, right? He gets to the end of the indicative and he goes back and he says, this is a faithful saying and these things wilt thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Paul, you already said that. Yeah, he did. He said it in chapter three already. He also said in chapter two and chapter one and in every other book you wrote because we're supposed to affirm it constantly. That gospel truth requires gospel living. I think there are two wrong ways to think about the Christian life, two extremes. One is that you will be miraculously sin, sinless, right? That, that just it's going to happen. And the other is that you will never change that much at all. And both of those things are a problem. Because if you, if you know the gospel, you ought to be changing. You ought to be becoming more and more like Christ. Your life shouldn't be the same this year as it was last year. Right? Your character, your behavior, your motivation, all of those things ought to be changing. Little by little, but they should be changing. <clears throat> it's also true that, that it's not just going to happen miraculously. It's, it's also true that it's going to take a lot of work on your behalf. But now, because of the power of the Spirit inside of you, that work is not work in vain. Um, sometimes we might take a gr brand new Christian and teach them how they're supposed to act. But what's the good of teaching someone how to act if it's not in their heart, if it's not on the inside? It's just like a, an actor learning the part of a doctor or, or a lawyer. I mean, you can teach someone how to do it. You teach the right, motivate, uh, right 
words and the right movements, but it means nothing if it's not in the heart. It's better to take a brand new Christian and to teach them how the indicatives, the truths of the gospel transform our behavior. So that's what we must do. Gospel truth saves sinful people. Gospel truth precedes gospel living, and gospel truth requires gospel living. You don't notice anything that, that just you can't get away from? When I look at this, I see that there is no room for middle ground. You are either saved or you're not saved. You're either justified or you're not. You've either experienced the grace and the mercy of God through faith or you have not. There's no, I'm hopefully good enough. There's no, I think that I'm doing enough, that I'm, I'm going to make the cut, make the line. There's none of that. That doesn't exist in the realm of Christendom. Bluntly, you are doing it your way or you're doing it God's way. You are saved or you're not. To the Christian, the gospel is everything or it is nothing. Either it changes us and it's, it has the power to save and transform, or it doesn't. It's impotent to do both of those things. And so if we are truly Christians, we recognize that the power of the gospel is able to transform our lives and to save us eternally. The gospel is everything or it is nothing. Christ is our all in all or is nothing at all. That's just the Christian life. And that's a hard thing, I think, in our culture because we are very comfortable and because we, we are used to enjoying pleasures of the world and enjoying our relationship with God. That's just not God's design. God meant for us to be completely transformed. He meant for the gospel to impact every part of your life. He meant for the person that you used to be to not be that person anymore, that you are more and more like Christ every day. And if that's not happening, then there is a problem. We must recognize that the gospel saves sinners. If you're not saved, the gospel, God can save you today. If you'll put your faith in Christ and repent of your sin, God will save you today. We must also recognize that if we are saved, it requires everything of us that we should be living out the truths of the gospel every single day. This is the truth. It's not because I say so. It's because the Bible says so. And so let us be an obedient people to God's word. Let's pray.